an interview with the award-winning dim bulb blogger and author Jonathan Salem Baskin. Bonjour and welcome to the Minter Dialogue radio show. I am Minter Dial, host of this downloadable radio show, also known as a podcast. I'm author of the blog TheMindset.com, where you'll find the show notes for this interview. And I write en français on MinterDial.fr. Anyway, upcoming is an interview recorded with Jonathan Salem Baskin, noted blogger, speaker, and author of three books, with a fourth on the way. Jonathan is a great source for quality inspiration and thought-provoking analysis on brands. Let's cut straight to the interview. Good morning, and thanks for joining the Minter Dialogue radio show. I have with me Jonathan Salem Baskin, who's up in snowy Chicago. I have the pleasure of being in sunny Florida this time for Christmas. And uh, Jonathan is a uh, reputed author. He's uh, published a number of books, amongst the most well-known Branding Only Works on Cattle, as well as Bright Lights and Dim Bulb Year, uh, Dim Bulb, Year in Marketing Buzz, Brilliance and Buffoonery which has been updated for 2010, mm-hmm. as well as the latest book, Histories of Social Media. You also have a column in Ad Age. Uh, Jonathan, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Minter. And uh, on the weather front, just uh, bear in mind, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Uh, well, I, I, the short version is I grew up in the uh, Ad Age business in the 80s. I worked at Gray in New York and then in L.A., uh, went corporate and ran marketing communications for a couple big brands, Nissan, Blockbuster, and Limited Brands, which is you know the parent company, Victoria's Secret, and uh, uh, whatever BBW and all the other the other brands. Um, then I went and worked uh, with Sergio Zeman after he left Coke and did some marketing consulting with him, and uh, also sat on the executive marketing committee for Apple for the uh, iMac launch back in '98 and '99. Um, around the turn of the century, I got it in my head that I wanted to do it for myself, so I started my own consultancy and worked with businesses and partners around the world. And then about six or seven years ago, thought, huh, not only is this interesting to do as a, as a profession, but it might be interesting to talk about. And that's when I started my first book and also started blogging and, and writing and trying to really create this another level of conversation, if you will, with fellow marketers and fellow business people to feed my head, but also get better at what I do. And, and that's kind of where I've ended up now, actually shifting a lot more to the the speaking and the writing and the thinking part and still doing a little bit of the consulting just to keep myself sharp, but uh, primarily really kind of diving into the issues that I know, Mentor, you think about and work on all the time as well. Well, what, what I particularly enjoy about reading uh, in what you write, uh, Jonathan, is your, your point of view on branding. You know, because we have this, the notion of the old school and the new school, and somehow I find that you have a wonderful uh, bridge between both. How would you describe your point of view on branding? Uh, well, it, it, again, a short answer would be, um, yeah, I think there is just a school maybe with different departments or different floors, sort of like imagine Hogwarts with different staircases and different rooms, and maybe they shift and they change, but... Fundamentally, there is only one school, and, and I'd argue that, that brands ultimately are about behavior. And that while we marketers are, and because we're primarily liberal arts people, we tend to think about brands in terms of how people feel, how they think, uh, and what they mean conceptually, because we love ideas. I'd argue that the ultimate outcome, and therefore the substance of brands, is really about what people do with them both internally in terms of the folks who who maintain them or who build them, i.e. the businesses that offer products and services, 
And then also what consumers do, customers or consumers, whether it's B2B or B2C, what they do with the brands that we offer them. And what I mean by do is not thinking isn't doing. Doing is physical action in the real world. The way people act is really the ultimate proof of and measurement of brands. Which is funny from a wordsmith. You know, we, we, as you say, we're liberal arts guys, we're ideas and, and writers of words and copy and so on for ads. But mm-hmm. in reality, it, it, the rubber hits the road when you act. And, and truthfully, Minter, I think that in this sort of networked world we live in now, where there's this elevated or accentuated, enhanced virtual nature of experience and participation, it makes those objective reality actions all the more important because they become truly the only things that we can ultimately agree upon. You know, the level of virtual engagement means we're always going to, there's always going to be another side to a story. There's always going to be another perception, another opinion, and it's going to change moment to moment. What becomes then fact or what's left for fact is what actually happened. You know, you may have thought about my Old Spice deodorant and laughed your damn fool head off. But if you didn't buy it, why do I care ultimately as a marketer? And it's those kinds of questions that I love asking and love grappling with. And I don't claim to necessarily have all the answers, but it's a damn interesting conversation. I'm all over that. So let's, we're, we're December 26th, Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> what would you say, looking back on the year, have been the big takeaway for brands in 2010? Yeah, I, you know, two things probably, Minter. The first would be um, humility. Because 2010, because it was such a crappy year economically for most of us in the Western world, um, shouldn't that have been the period when brands sort of spent some of that equity that they had built up over the years and actually been able to preserve some margin and prompt some more sales? I mean, if you think about it, the argument for brands, one of the arguments has always been, well, we're investing in the long term. We're building up equity, and this perception and awareness will somehow pay back. Well, I'd argue that 2010 should have been one of the years that some of the big brands got payback. They didn't. Uh, in fact, they ended up, you know, you can look at P&G and some of their leading brands as a, as a notable example. The only way they survived was because they slashed prices or they started quickly rolling out products at lower price points. So I'd say the, the first thing to take away for brands in 2010 is a sense of humility and a willingness to look at some of those equity and investment arguments and with no you know, emotion to it, just sort of a, a, a business head say, huh, maybe some of our models about what we were investing in and what it was truly worth to us uh, were flawed or incomplete. Um, the second thing I take away from 2010 is a real challenge to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm an armchair scientist. I mean, I know, Minter, you and I are liberal arts guys, but I, I have a fascination for technology and for science. And like, you know, an armchair, I, I couldn't, you know, I failed physics, but I still find it desperately interesting. Um, and, and, and in any scientific experiment, the challenge is always to get the noise down so that you can see what's really going on. And I think that the challenge, and I don't have a good answer for this one, but there was so much going on in 2010 in terms of politics economy, um, you know, global issues that people were writing about and thinking about and therefore consumers were thinking about and caring about, that it's really hard to look at brands and kind of distill out from that noise what really happened. 
And I, I, I'm surprised that there aren't more conversations going. Clients, and maybe you're seeing it. I, I'm not. Conversations of just, you know, how do you take out that noise about what was going on in the economy or even in your product category and to really then see what really went on with your brand. And I think the nature of social conversation makes even that a harder thing to do because these brand perceptions are so intertwined with what's going on. So again, humility, which is an easier case to make, and sort of confusion part, I don't have a good answer for that. But again, it's it's those kind of questions I think brands should be asking themselves going into 2011. Well, it's a little bit like your point on your, your recent post about trust. You, you yeah. have democracy, and democracy and branding have a similarity in one sense, is that there's, there's a lot going on, and there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no filtering which a dictator could do. Say, this is the way it is, eins, zwei, drei. And, mm-hmm. and to the extent that in, in brands we're all politically correct, we're listening to everybody, and or democracy, well, you know, you have to listen to all the population, my electorate, and so on. We ended up we end up getting buffeted by so much information that we don't take our own stance, we don't have our own position, mm. and we end up being everything to everybody, and and there we lose the plot. And I think their wheat and the chaff is there. The, the, mm. Those ones who are trying to please everybody, and the other ones who, who manage to find a, a standpoint that's a little stronger. Oh yeah, Minter, I think that's a really really insightful point because at some level somewhere in the corporate hierarchy or in the structure of your brand, there has to be a voice that says, this is what we do and this is what we believe and here's why. And I, you know, I think that idea of, you know, you're calling it a dictator, but it, it, it really is. It's in, in the sense that it's dictation. You know, for there to be an effective conversation, your brand actually has to stay, say stuff that matters. And that doesn't mean matters in that it's entertaining or that your consumers have just said they like hearing it because... You know, consumers like hearing funny things, and they like getting things for free. We've known for generations that that doesn't necessarily build brand awareness or brand equity or brand loyalty. So it's that idea of, you know, don't give up your brand. And one of the things that drives me nuts is when I hear, you know, people talking about, well, you give up your brands. Or I've had people reply to some of my posts and articles saying, you know, that it's an old idea that companies own brands. The consumer owns the brand. And I've actually, and I'll say, are you nuts? You own the brand. If you if you have a business, you own it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't share it. You shouldn't make it real. You shouldn't listen. You shouldn't engage. But ultimately, you are a dictator. You're a benevolent despot. <laughs> Sell your stuff. <laughs> do, you have, do you have examples of uh, of companies that are, are who for you who are the brands that are doing a great job in this regard? Yeah, well, the easiest answer is Apple, and I won't spend a lot of time on it because it, we all talk about it too much and because it is such an outlier but if you think about it what apple does is makes interesting cool stuff and then puts that out into the market and says here you go we will live or die by what we do they have no social media presence they're not terribly responsive necessarily so they violate probably a number of the top 10 things marketers tell their brands their clients to do yet they are wildly successful doing it so I think the lesson in that in Apple is not that they're great marketers in, in, a, in a typical definition of marketing, but that they really have seen this idea. And, you know, we could joke about Steve Jobs being a dictator, but um, they do something and they do something very well and, and people uh, accept it. I, I, say, I think with that now pushed to the side, 
Um, in terms of other businesses being, again, you I, I, great language. I don't mean to riff too much on it, but this idea of benevolent dictator or dictatorship. Um, you know, I think any of the businesses that focus on what they do versus describing it or trying to tell us something that they're not. You know, Amazon, for instance, I think continues to do a great job of retailing things without a lot of noise around it. Um, I think any of you know the Zappos they bought it obviously, and that, that's an easy thing to to have done. But they bought them because they were so they were so in Zapatica. They were very similar. Um, I would say that uh, any of the we've seen at least here in the states, we've seen a lot in 2010 from the insurance businesses all trying to step up and compete for those initial insurance policyholder contracts. You know, we've had the Geico Lizard, and and only in the last couple of months we've seen Allstate tee it up with these amazingly great spots with this character called Mayhem who, you know, does makes bad things happen. And you have to say personify the threat of, of, of why you get insurance and the threat of risk, which is great. And now we have these spots from a state farm. I think these businesses, you know, insurance is probably one of the most boring, unsexy, have to purchases in the world, you know, because you have to, at least in the States, you have to buy, when you buy a car, you have to have car insurance. Um, and I think they've all been doing a very good job of very forthrightly saying, this is what we do. This is why it should matter versus trying to make it particularly um, something it isn't. You know, when Allstate characterizes the risk of liability, the risk of a tree falling on your car, um, it's not trying to tell you their insurance is going to make you happy or sexy or more popular or whatever. They're just helping almost educate you into why the hell you need this stuff. And I think that's a brilliant use of creative and a brilliant use of actually marketing communications to do a better job of building what that brand is about. I love that. So, yeah. Uh, Jonathan, you you work with uh, a number of companies, or you have at least worked with a yes. number of companies around the world. And uh, since I, I'm based in Paris and usually work with European companies, how do you uh, measure or see the difference between the way brands are working in the United States or North America versus uh, other places around the world, specifically in Europe? Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, I, in many ways, I pride myself on being a citizen of the world, but I think at my core, I'm a really, you know, mono-dimensional American, and stereotypically in a lot of very embarrassing ways. And I discover this as I as I get older. It's been a great realization to me that um, in America, in the U.S., brands and, and if you will, the conversation with the consumer is is in a way almost impersonal because of our cultural. Uh, context, you know, and we have this idea in the states of the lone pioneer and the rugged individual against the elements and against society, and you know, God forbid the government does something, you know, looks at me the wrong way, I'm going to get my Second Amendment rights gun and go kill them all. It, it's not that stark, but the cultural context in which we communicate and business business communicates in the states is. At its core, very much about that that individual, and as such, I think a lot of times our communications and our brand strategies here either take that into effect and perhaps even acknowledge it or, or cater to it too far. Conversely, what I'm continually amazed by is how community and relationship oriented the brands have to be in Europe, and how different it is even country by country. You know, even just the differences between France and the UK. Both countries have done a fair amount of work in are on one level, they both value community, but actually in very different ways. So short answer is 
it's the, the relevance and the power of those cultural contexts to challenge how we think about brands. Um, blows me away. And, and the big, one of the biggest differences is the difference between how we approach community in any country, but almost there's, a, there's an Anglo-Saxon community of thing, and then there are others. And I, I have to challenge myself to get out of that Anglo-Saxon approach that's sort of hardwired into me and sense and be and be honest about how it is in the rest of the world. So that's one example. That's brilliant because uh, in the end of the day, <clears throat> it starts with your notion of the individual and to what extent a society uh, recognizes the weight and the importance of the individual backed by law or something. Uh, you, Absolutely. I, I can see how that plays out. In, in, uh, that's an interesting conversation, right? especially when you're all about trying to build communities or at least supposedly. Supposedly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things we have in working in the digital space in particular, but because Internet is the world, WWW, but yeah. if you're in a brand that's building an international presence, what do you think are the key success factors for building a successful brand strategy with regard to the digital space? Yeah, it, 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 the short answer is I don't know, and I don't think anybody does. Um, it, we, I, we've not nailed that yet because... At, at some point in the conversation, whether it's short or long term, the, the 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 only reason digital matters is if it results in sales. So in a way, the digital metric at some point becomes identical to the analog metrics that we've used all along. So any measure of engagement, participation, frequency, time spent, likability, any other qualitative measures um, – at some point, ultimately, do have to result in an action, in a behavior that, again, isn't part of a process, but is an outcome. Because we've proven, I think, over the past couple of years especially, that brands can find its way to engage and prompt online behavior. It's, it's fairly easy, actually, to get people to click and to spend time and to forward and to do all these other measures of behavior that are digital and unique to the digital experience. I think the the challenge then is to get ahead of that and, and really hold ourselves accountable to what outcomes happened. And, and, and I think the best outcome and the most important outcome is selling something. So I get back to that. If you sell things, you that is the metric then that gives you the tool to work backwards to understand how and why and when and and who um, versus trying to come up with sort of an endless list of measures that we can use on the way there saying they matter. They do. But digital, I think, maybe that's going to be something we're going to see more in the next couple of years, but the digital, it's going to come home. It's going to recombine with analog, and we're going to start sharing metrics again, the first and most important of which will be sales. So uh, it'll be coming back to, I would say, old, quote-unquote, school uh, metrics then that's going to be the real yeah. challenge. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's a big challenge, but i got to tell you, Minter, I mean, and you see this with your clients, and, and, and or you probably do, and you probably read about it as I do. You know, it's this continuous sort of this, this chronic disconnect between the C-suite and the CMOs in particular who the social lobby will continually berate because they don't get it. You know, the headlines in Ad Age are always about, why aren't people spending more money on digital? Why are they just, you know, stupid? They got their heads buried in the sand. They should be shifting more to social. What's their problem? Well, the problem is 
it makes no sense. <laughs> the problem is it doesn't fit into not just the way people think, but the fundamental way businesses are run and how they're managed financially. And I think the more we as marketers stop thinking that the, it's our clients and our employers who just are behind the times and instead realize maybe if we just were smart marketers, we'd understand their language. And I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book, in my first book. Let's stop telling them they're wrong and trying to educate them on how they have to change and maybe change our approach. You know, so you get some folks who, who are financial managers who use a bunch of old school metrics like, you know, Six Sigma and operational controls and all the crap that is so boring. Again, to us liberal arts people, God, put me to sleep. I don't want more numbers about, you know, continuous improvement. That's operational crap. I don't care. But guess what? That's the heart and soul of the business, not the junk we talk about. <laughs> Which book were you referring to? In uh, Branding Only Works on Cattle, it was a, a whole chapter about um, kind of coming to terms with the philosophy behind, um, you know, Edward Deming and all of the, the, if you will, theology of operational improvement. And again, we as liberal arts marketing types really don't grasp how profound the thinking is behind those operational processes are. And if we if we if we realize that those guys might, they might look like accountants, but they actually have souls like we do, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it may not be beautiful poetry, but it's still profound. And I think there's a, a big opportunity for us marketers to kind of embrace those things versus telling them how they need new measures. Mm -hmm. And they look at us crosswise and say, "Why am I measuring time spent with a viral video?" And us thinking they're dumb because they don't get it. Mm. Maybe we're dumb. I don't know. Good point, Jonathan. Uh, so one of the one of the uh, products that you have on your site is uh, called the Quiet Storm. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about your relationship with Quiet Storm and, and what they do? I know it's designed for B two B marketing, but tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, Quiet Storm is a marketing services business in the Midlands in the UK, and what they've done is served B2B clients, small and mid-sized B2B clients for, for, I think, going on 15 or 20 years now, and every marketing service you can imagine. And I partnered with the founder there a couple of years ago, Steve Megson, um, to address a, a fundamental need we saw in the marketplace, which was that most B2B companies, at least small and mid-sized businesses, um, when they asked for marketing services or marketing help, they were actually asking a different question. It would, it would come across as we need a trade booth for the trade shows or we need a brochure or we need a video. What they were really asking, though, were questions about we need to find new customers. We need to improve the profitability of existing customers. We need to um, better manage our cost of goods sold so that we could realize a greater margin on what we sell and what we're going to sell. And those were those business questions that would kind of emerge almost – uh, not, not necessarily in, in, in spite of, but maybe around the, the, the question they'd articulate, which is, I need a new brochure. So we came up with a, a process, if you will, a process that we packaged so that small and medium-sized B2B companies could work through those strategic questions, thinking about who our customers are, where are they located, who are the most profitable ones, what are the things that matter to them, sort of talk about the business without talking about how are we going to market to them so that they could make better marketing decisions and also own the process internally in the business instead of 
you know, again, a common thing for businesses of all sizes is when you look at a sales or marketing challenge, you think, well, I'm going to go find an expert to help me. And again, I know, Minter, that's how you and I make, make a living. I'm not trying to get us out of a job, but so many times, and I know it's probably happened to you, you're sitting here, I'm thinking, God, I wish I could tell you the questions you should be asking, because I'll answer what you're asking me, <laughs> but I really wish you were asking something different. There is an art so, asking the right questions, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we wrote, so we came up with this package so that businesses could buy it and use it. And we tested it out on a couple dozen. It's, it, it has our collective wisdom, what, what, what little it's worth, but uh, actually a lot of experience. And we tested it out with a couple dozen companies um, in beta form about a year and a half ago. And uh, at this point, we're really up and running. We, we've yet to really start selling it in here in the U.S., in the US but it's been available now in the U.K. for, for, for a bit now. So, Jonathan, um, with regard to Quiet Storm, you are based in the Midlands and you are planning to send, sell it into the United States. Do you have other countries you can sell it into or is it just those two? Uh, so far, it's only those two. Again, to be part of, you know, what, what's the saying, Dr. Heal Thyself? Mm -hmm. um, part of the humility argument is that culturally, we know this process, this package process will work, works in the UK and with some amending should work for the same reasons or many of the same reasons in the U.S. I, we believe it has immense potential not only in continental Europe but in places like China where B2B businesses are dying to figure out the marketing challenge and to start differentiating themselves. Um, but in honest humility, I'm not certain we have the thinking yet on how to make those, the, the process truly usable in continental Europe or in China or other markets, the way it is here, could be here, is in the UK. And for that matter, I, probably Australia should be on our list for the same kind of Anglo-Saxon kind of, you know, continuum of, of, we, of it should work in these markets. Um, so we're going to kind of take it one step at a time. Well, there's presumably plenty of plenty of uh, clients available in the yeah. UK yeah. and the yeah, United could, States. We, yeah, we could do worse. Especially as we were <laughs> talking before the interview about um, the fact that B2B could be an even broader scope if you, if you imagine that part of the B2C chain is actually the distributor in the middle and that maybe there's some work to be had in helping B2C companies redefine how they approach their distribution partners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 and, and, I, and that's what, that's really one of the ahas in the in the whole quiet storm process, which is, you know, you can when you start talking about your customers, not in terms of just marketing, but in terms of who they are, what they do, why they do it, you realize all the influences that are you can argue are all marketing. Everything the business does is marketing, but you realize all those influences on the ultimate buyer. A lot of them involve budgets and activities you never would have considered part of marketing, most notably sales into the distribution channel. You know, once those people actually think and get and are empowered and acknowledged to be able to have marketing ideas, it, it's almost as if we help clients double their bar budgets because suddenly you're not working now out of a single bucket that's allocated to brochures and displays and, if you will, marketing tactics. And you're looking instead at the operational budget saying, huh, how do we, the way we run our finance department and the way we run accounts payable, are there things we can do there that actually benefit and empower our customers to like us more and it's more money? Let's call that marketing. Yeah. And let's do that versus thinking just about the end user. Or just so it, it actually, we, 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 we manage budgets and we also create opportunity. 
Uh, how, how does someone uh, get in touch with Quiet Storm if they want uh, their services? Uh, just uh, Quiet Storm Limited or uh, Storming Marketing Online or go to my website, JonathanSalemBaskin.com, and uh, there's a link there under consulting, and uh, it's uh, easy to find, and uh, we're happy to talk about it. All right, well, I'll put it in the show notes. So, uh, Jonathan, you. you have uh, just published, I guess, in, in the fall this year, Histories of yep. Social Media. So if, um, if the social media is old news, then the issue in a corporate environment is reinventing the wheel? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's two things. One, it's, it's acknowledging um, what, and understanding what the wheel is, and then, if you will, reinventing or just repurposing it. But it's, it's a wheel that has been driving, God, I'm sorry about the cliche or the punnery, but driving business for centuries. You know, my, my central premise is... Uh, behaviors like crowdsourcing, community, conversation, these are not new ideas in culture, let alone in business. Um, they're not inventions of technology. They certainly aren't inventions of the Internet. Yet when we talk about social media, what we're really doing is we're talking about those technologies that have been around since the 1950s at the, at, at the latest, and I mean at the earliest. And what I wanted to do in the book was kind of dive, dig deeper and say, huh, Crowdsourcing, this premise that the challenge for business is to use technology tools to enable the broadest community of people to help us innovate and give us ideas we can't come up with ourselves because the crowd is inherently smart. I wanted to look at history and ask the question of myself, is that actually valid from a historical perspective? And the answer is it's ludicrous. It's, it's nuts. The crowd was considered a mob and insane through all of history. Now, we can argue that this wasn't necessarily always fair. We can argue that it wasn't necessarily efficient, but it's fact. So, you know, when you look at the crowdsource, you know, the French Revolution was crowdsourced social change. And you had the crowd with a legitimate desire for cheaper bread, and you had an outcome of a renamed calendar and a bunch of people with their heads chopped off. And no insult to, you know, your, well, I know you live in Paris, but it was a nutty outcome that the crowd pretty much drove off the side of a cliff versus, you know, you look at a brand now and all the sort of internal claims of saying, let's crowdsource our product development, let's crowdsource our marketing creative there should be some level of sensitivity to or awareness of those sort of past experiences of crowd behavior so that when we're looking at that next um, Facebook fan page or, um, you know, actual chat driven or one of the tools for, you know, for like AdMob for, for crowdsourcing information, that maybe we should build in a couple more, if you will, protections or boundaries to better manage that crowdsource experience. It, 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 George DeSantiana is a, a, a philosopher, and, and he wrote, and I, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like, if you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat them, or the mistakes of history, and you're going to repeat them. And you know, on the instance of crowdsourcing, I think it was an obvious thing. There, there are other things. You know, community is not a new idea. You know, we talk about communities online as a technology artifact, but obviously we've been living in communities and geophysical realities since we were living in caves together. So I thought I'd dive deep and say, okay, what were the qualities of a medieval village? What made people feel like they were members, that it mattered, that they contributed to it, that made the community thrive? 
And it turns out that a lot of those aspects of community that were true through all of history don't appear in many of the communities we're describing and building online. The most notable difference is that every community in the real world had a quid pro quo, that there was actually a cost of being a member, whether it was direct taxation, it was playing in a hierarchical role, it was a requirement for contributing to the, the community through commerce or culture. It, communities, that's why people were members of them, because they mattered. And yet you look at the communities we're building for brands, we use the word so loosely. They're not communities at all. They're glorified distribution lists. And, and the same thing with conversation. You know, one of the one of the funny biases in, in the marketing in our world, Minter, is we pretend like the dialogue from brands to consumers used to be one way. You know, and you've seen it. You know, it was it was talk about dictatorial. It was the media was one way. Brands told consumers what to do. They dutifully followed. There was no conversation. People were automatons, and now consumers can be heard. That's a lie. It was always two-way. It was just two-way in different ways. There were conversations going on with brands in the 1950s and the 1940s and the 1930s, arguably more robust and more meaningfully than they happen now. But we ignore those conversations because they don't fit into our model now of, well, if it isn't online, it's not a conversation. Um, so I wanted to study what those conversations were like and all the different media they used, you know, transmedia experience. Milton Berle did it in the 1950s when he appeared on radio and print and on television. These are not new behaviors. Mm-hmm. So I, it, obviously this, it, I could riff on this for hours, but it's just such a powerful resource, history, for us to distill out ideas and implications for tomorrow's social strategy. So the book is nine essays on various aspects of history as they relate to specific social activities like community or behavior. For instance, you know, online chat and commenting on a blog is really no different than jousting or dueling. Those behaviors have been common for centuries. We just do them online now. Is it really the same thing as conversation? I don't think so. Well, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I, you can guarantee I'll go and get it. And it's available yeah. on Amazon. And where else would you suggest yeah. buying it? Uh, it's also available at uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, it's actually going to be rolling out. This was a pre pre publication um, this this past fall, so this January it should be available pretty much at every online site. I don't think we're going to have geographic distribution. Actually, my publisher is a, a think tank out of Silicon Valley called the Society for New Communications Research. Yeah. And uh, so they're kind of like academicians and other thought leaders in the social s- space. So, But any online distributor should have it uh, sometime early to mid-January. And I know you're working on a fourth book. Uh, good luck working on that, uh, Jonathan. Um, that's got to be fun. So um, one... One of the things I'd like to ask is, uh, what, what are your favorite sites, references? Uh, where, do you, where are your go-to spots to get your inspiration uh, and feed your brain? Yeah, what a great question, right? I, I'm surprised there aren't more opportunities for people like us to actually post and swap favorite blogs and favorite sites. I mean, if there, there's no good, efficient model to do that. Hey, maybe there's a business there. I don't know if we make any money. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have an eclectic collection of sites I visit everywhere from me. I'm a big economist reader on the on the sort of old slash new media publication side to, you know, I'm on Boing Boing every day. There are a couple steampunk sites I go to. Um, I'm a big new, new scientist fan for another new uh, old media, new media site. So 
Well, I, I really the, the short the, the short answer is I, I I try to allocate some time every morning. I know that you and I are early morning guys. I try to allocate a, a, a block of time every morning to literally pursue new ideas wherever they may take me. So instead of visiting the five or six sites that I visit regularly, what I'll do is I try to allocate the mental space to say, okay, I'm just going to look at the day's news, I'm going to see what pops up, and if something pops up that is interesting to me or I'm curious about, I'm going to allow myself the capacity and the time, to, the freedom, to click through and see where this takes me and see where I might learn something. So I will end up at the strangest sites on any given morning. Um, sites I wouldn't normally have thought of visiting, sites I would never necessarily recommend to another living soul. Um, but it's that, it's that process of exploration that I find really inspiring every day. And, and truthfully, if I didn't make that time, I don't know how I'd create a lot of the ideas I have because there's otherwise there's no mechanism to do it. If I got an update on my iPhone telling me go visit a site and I'm busy running to a meeting, I'm never going to really dig in. So I take about a half an hour to an hour every day and just explore. You, what, you know, when you when I listen to you, I, I hear uh, you you give yourself the time in the morning to go and allow your curiosity to lead it to where it goes and you, and you follow links and you end up finding new things. And it, what, what strikes me about what you are saying is that in today's world with a never ending, uh, opp opportunities, options to find information, uh, people could be, I would say overwhelmed by the options, but they also have this lack of my opinion of discipline to go out there and, mm. and allow themselves to explore, to to help them resource, find resources, to think out of the box, discover new things, and and that's for me what I, I take away from what you're saying. Instead of have, having one spot, your go-to reference, you know, Fox News for the right wingers and so on, you allow mm. yourselves to punch through, and you you create the discipline to, to that gives you the free time to find new stuff. You know, absolutely, you've said it better than I, than I said it, Major, but it, it, and it's back to one of the things I talk about in my book. What, what was one of the primary ways you defined a medieval village? By its walls. And I would argue that, on, you know, Marshall McLuhan's vision of a global village didn't happen. What happened instead is we got a million walled villages. And because of the noise and the enormity and the complexity of what's available, um, people tend to pick their reliable sources and rely on them. And to me, that seems like we're just we're just agreeing to live in ever smaller spaces, intellectually as well as emotionally, and in many ways, reality, realistically. So I, I'm thinking I want to jump over walls, and I, you know, sometimes it's stupid. I, I'll tell you, Mitchell. Sometimes I'll look back at what I just did for a half an hour, 45 minutes, and think, Oh my God, I might as well just have flushed that time down the toilet. This was pointless. But I think you got to do that in order to have the mental openness to chance upon something truly novel and truly different. And that's the beauty of what's in front of us on the Internet. We really do have ubiquitous availability of information. So cutting the time to go do it, to me, seems a lot more important than coming up with the five sites, to your point, that you rely on to be kind of told and then retold everything you already knew. <laughs> I think one of, one of I, I just wrote a post about what I think is one of the biggest ills of today, and that's the lack of prioritization. 
Mm. And if we uh, were to say, well, listen, you know, prioritize what you have to do, which also means prioritizing what you should not do, mm-hmm. then that will allow you the time to do what you need to do. And if, if thinking out of the box means I have to waste a half an hour on occasion because I don't doesn't end up with the right thing. Well, that's also part of the creative process and thinking about innovation and everything. Not every innovation works. And therefore, not every little path you go down is going to work. But account for that. Allow for it. And then you can end up with uh, what you need. Yeah, agreed. And again, you're really not going to know what's valuable unless you're reminded somewhat regularly what's valueless. <laughs> so you, know, you, you got to see what, what's garbage in order to really appreciate beauty and simplicity and insight and innovation. So, yeah. So anyway, so I, I, have no, I have no recommended sites necessarily other than I think everybody should take that time and especially explore things that you normally wouldn't have visited. If I haven't gone and read about something or thought about something that I really hadn't thought about prior any given day, I feel as though I haven't done my job. Um, I can, there's always enough ways to remind me of the things I already know and I already believe, and I can get that affirmation 24-7. That's the easy part. The hard part is, to your, what you said, is risk failure, and that's how you truly innovate. So It's this yeah. notion of trying to know what you don't know. And how, how do I know? Yeah. How do I know what I don't know if I don't know what I do know or, or don't know? <laughs> <laughs> something like that, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, like that. Jonathan Salem Baskin. How do we uh, get in touch with you if uh, people would like to read about you or give me give me your sites? Yeah, sure. Um, again, it's JonathanSalemBaskin.com is my my homepage, which is a great starting point. Um, you can search for me on advertising age and come up with a couple dozen of my latest columns. I also, my blog is Dim Bulb, in that I'm the Dim Bulb, so Dim Bulb, all one, one word, dot net, is where I post twice a week, and also, again, my current book is Histories of Social Media, all one word, dot com, and there, actually, I'm also posting five times a week with uh, little tidbits of what happened on that date in history that might be relevant to social planning and thinking today. So uh, a couple different ways to do it, but a great starting point would be just uh, JonathanSalemBaskin.com. Well, I highly recommend that uh, anyone listening go, go visit. Uh, Jonathan is a source of lots of great information, a great, uh, great source of content, which is something we need today. And it's been a pleasure to have you uh, on board, Jonathan. Uh, looking forward to uh, keeping in touch with you, following what you're doing, and um, anything, everything that's in, the, we, in our conversation will be in the show notes. Jonathan, Marvelous. have a great day. Happy Boxing Day. Yeah, back at you, Minter. Thank you very much. Travel safe. You'll be in touch. Thanks. Bye. So thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show with Jonathan Baskin-Salem. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter under the tab Subscribe. If you like this show and, of course, you speak French, you can find my other French-language interviews on minterdial.fr. In the meantime, please join the conversation at The Mindset, where branding gets personal, or catch me on Twitter at mdial, M-D-I-A-L. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do tweet it out or pass along to a friend. Happy trails and happy holidays.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.